Scripture lesson this morning is from 2 John, verses 1 through 13. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have been commanded by the Father. But now, dear lady, I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have heard had from the beginning, let us love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, you must walk in it. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Be on your guard so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may receive a full reward. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive and welcome this person into your house. For to welcome is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. Although I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister send you their greetings. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the 2010 hit movie Inception, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, if you haven't seen this movie, by the way, you need to go see it immediately after this, all right? Like just whatever streaming, so if you have to buy a whole new streaming service just to watch this movie, it's worth it. Brilliantly done, in my opinion. In my opinion means everything. In this particular movie, we enter a world where people can enter into one another's dreams. Right? Fascinating concept. And in these dream worlds, a person can steal secrets or plant thoughts in the sleeping person's mind. Consider how crazy that would be. If someone could find out your deepest, darkest secrets or convince you to do something by entering your mind while you sleep. But that's the premise of this movie. In it, a quote from the main character, uh, Dom Cobb, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, asks this question. What is the most resilient parasite? Is it bacteria or a virus? We might think so, considering how long COVID-19 is sticking around. Is it an, an intestinal worm? It's an idea. An idea is resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks right there, in there somewhere. For instance, he says, if I tell you, don't think of an elephant. What are you thinking about right now? An idea. Something so small as an idea can have such a mighty impact on everything about the way we see the world. 
For instance, if you start off your day with the idea that this is going to be a bad day, and I've started off my days like that many a times, particularly when the alarm goes off way too early, this is going to be a bad day. Then you end up seeing the worst in that day. Everything that happens gets filtered through this lens of, it's a bad day. Now, sure, it can still turn around, but that idea is the baseline for going through that day. On the contrary, if you start your day with the idea that it's going to be a good one, then you end up seeing things in a more positive light. And yes, bad things can still throw us off during the day, but it's that very idea which shapes our approach to the day we're taking on. See, small things can have mighty influences, just like our book for today. Second John, or might know it as the second epistle of John, is a bit perplexing in a couple of ways. Now, first of all, this is not the Gospel of John, and it's not the second Gospel of John. It's the second epistle of John. If you notice towards the back of the New Testament, you have 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Very original with our titles back in the day. And 2 John is, is complicated. For one, it's often attributed to John the Apostle. However, some of its content, which references Gnosticism a bit, uh, is, would have suggested that this letter was actually written much later than the Apostle John was still alive. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove anything. We just don't know. We don't have the information of 2,000 years ago. Very complicated stuff. We can confirm that it's the same author who wrote 3 John, but that's not saying much. It could possibly be the same author that wrote 1 John, but we don't have as much convincing evidence. It's complicated. The Bible isn't as clear-cut as we like to make it uh, sound. Additionally, we don't really know the audience of this letter. We have the addressee as the elect lady and her children. But that's a bit vague, right? What does that mean, the elect lady and her children? There is some debate as, if, as to if the author is writing to a specific woman who was the leader of a house church. Uh, that could be the case, and her children could be her biological children or the people who come to her ch house church. Uh, many scholars in modern day have uh, come to believe that, uh, that the elect lady is actually the church itself, and the believers in the church are her children, that it, the elect lady is the church. And this is because the church in its early days was known as the group of the elect. Now this isn't like predestination kind of election, but rather just a reference to these are the people who have been chosen by God to fulfill the mission of the church at this point in time. And the church was referred to by using the feminine noun ecclesia, which is the Greek word that simply means the gathering, the congregation, the people. Whoever the audience is and whoever the author is, it is at least clear that they had some kind of long-standing relationship. That's all we gather from this definitively. That said, the purpose of the letter is very clear and twofold, with the latter being a little bit more significant to the author than the former uh, purpose. First, the first purpose of the letter, the author is reminding this church of the commandment to love, and that this love is reflected in the way that we live for Christ. We have this uh, 
passage starting in uh, verse 5. But now, dear lady, I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Let us love one another. Then, or secondly, the author is warning them against false teachers, which is a common caution for many early churches because they didn't have seminaries and they didn't have credentialing processes or uh, ordination rituals and stuff like that. Nobody got handed the certificates that I have on my wall in my office at this time. And so people could come in with their own thoughts and notions about how things should work and they start teaching this and as soon as they get credited as being a teacher, they now have power. This is a, at a point in time in which uh, knowledge really became understood as the source of all power. The more you knew, the more power you had. And so teachers were highly regarded, which is one of the reasons why James in his uh, letter cautions people, not many of you should become teachers. <laughs> and so these false teachers are coming in and one particular thing that they are claiming is that Jesus never actually appeared in the flesh, but was rather just spirit. Some spiritual entity, maybe a ghost that was hanging out with the disciples. I don't really know how this works exactly, but they, their claim was essentially Jesus was not a fleshly human being. And this was a pretty common fallacy uh, in the world in which they lived. Because they saw things in a particular way through the lens of, once again, I'm going to use the word Gnosticism, uh, which is, by the way, the uh, faith originating around what's known as sacred knowledge. And this uh, particular belief structure held that things that were fleshly, carnal in nature, were inferior or unclean compared to things of a spiritual nature, which were seen as divine, heavenly, things that were above us. And so, surely Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh because that would have made him unclean, inferior. Jesus must have been in spirit. But again, this is not a necessarily healthy way of addressing the differences between flesh and spirit. And so, the author calls them out and says, no, no, we're not even going there. What we need from you instead is to realize what the gospel is all about. And then the author concludes by essentially putting a pin in it, saying, hold that thought. I'm going to talk to you about the rest of it whenever I come and visit you. I'm kind of sick of all this writing things down on paper. We're going to have a face-to-face -face conversation. The you know, difference between sending an email or having a conference meeting. So... For us today, we start with the first half of this mighty lesson, love, the old commandment. Again, verse 5 says, but now, dear lady, I ask you not as though I were writing you a new commandment, hear that, this isn't anything new, but one we have had from the beginning. This is something we've always known, something we've always had. Let us love one another. When Jesus is asked in the Gospel of Matthew, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What is his answer? Yeah, there it is. Perfect. Yes. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment can be summed up very simply. Love. 
Now, here's why this is so important. Can anyone tell me what is the most important federal law in the United States? A bit more complicated, yeah? I, I couldn't uh, think of it myself, so I turned to a new tool that I found very interesting called ChatGPT. Anybody heard of this? It's an AI chatbot that you can access for free online by a group called OpenAI. And you're, you're basically just asking artificial intelligence, what's the most important federal law in the United States? And even this AI bot couldn't come up with the answer. It gave me books <laughs> to, to consult, uh, starting with uh, the entire US Constitution, then the Bill of Rights, and the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the um, Affordable Care Act, and there was one other. There goes my memory. But anyways, it started giving me entire pages to consult about the most important law, federal law in the U.S. And it's difficult to actually pin this down because our legal system is very direct and mostly specific. You know, things like don't kill each other. Don't commit fraud, you know, things like that. But do you know which law isn't included in federal or state laws? Love. Yeah. You are not required by law to love selflessly. Go figure. And this has been the case in basically every single legal system to ever exist. You are not required to love selflessly, except for the people of God. Now, here's the thing, okay? The people of God are given these commandments, and we're not very good with them. We're, we're all over the place whenever it comes to actually following them. Uh, and praise Jesus for grace that we don't get thrown into uh, God jail anytime we break one of them. Gets a little bit more complicated further down the road, but anyways, we're at least not going to some form of prison immediately if we like tell a lie or you know something like that. But love, being the greatest commandment, outlines for us those who follow Christ this understanding that who we are to be as a community, as a people, is quite contrary to how we might exist without Christ. Legal systems that have established baselines of these kinds of federal laws or state laws that have no room for love, little room for grace and mercy, and that, quite frankly, never contribute to peace. That's why this commandment is so important and why, why the author we'll say John for now, starts here. Because love unites rather than divides. And we as a species are, are, we make the world a better place whenever we unite over love. It's incredible what humanity is able to do when it's on a united front. It's incredible what humanity is able to do out of love rather than selfishness. And if you want to see the evidence, look at any community after a great disaster. 
the way that a community bands together. Right now, up in Selma, just a little bit north of us, as they're still recovering from the, from the tornadoes that went through, an entire community banded together, and people all over the globe sending resources to help out. Ooh, love. I'm also reminded of the response of the entire American people after September 11th, and the way that people banded together to support one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another. After these kind of disasters, we see the power of uniting love. But this kind of love stands in contrast to what the church to whom this letter is addressed was experiencing. They aren't experiencing that same kind of love. Instead, as we move into the second purpose of this letter, they are told, be on your guard. At some point, false teachers infiltrate the church and begin teaching a gospel that is contrary to the good news. They were essentially inventing their own Christ, one who fits their parameters and their ideas of a Savior rather than the Christ who is. My goodness, how often the church has done this in its history, invented the Jesus they want rather than the Jesus who is. And as we said before, an idea may be small, but its impacts are mighty. And so the church was dividing against itself over these ideas and the debate of who is right and who is wrong. Was Jesus flesh or was he just spirit? And they get so caught up in this debate. The church began to care more about this division than it cared about sharing the gospel. The church became consumed with the same things that the world gets wrapped up in, and it is completely unhealthy. Does this sound familiar? The United Methodist Church is currently going through its own divisive debate. And it's complete foolishness. And it's petty. And unhelpful. We have this opinion in the United Methodist Church that our side is right and the other side is wrong, all the while the United Methodist Church is crumbling because we care more about our differences than our common ground in Christ. Meanwhile, many false ideas and rumors have been being spread uh, about the United Methodist Church. In fact, I've heard seven too many times lately that the, you know, that the United Methodist Church no longer believes in things like the virgin birth or the divinity of Christ, or the resurrection of Christ, or the Trinity, along with several other things. These ideas that have been coming up as uh, people have been saying the UMC doesn't believe these things anymore, it's changing, you need to get out of here. Let me be very clear. This is unequivocally not true. The United Methodist Church has each of these beliefs set in what's called our Articles of Faith. And our Articles of Faith is an immutable doctrine. No person or group has the power to change these core beliefs. We, as a United Methodist Church, will never not believe in things like the virgin birth, the divinity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, or the Trinity. It's rooted in who we are as Christians. We can't not believe in those things. In fact, the only way that these articles of faith could be changed would be if a group of United Methodists decided to start their own denomination. Oh, wait. 
such rumors are only present to divide the church. And as Abraham Lincoln so eloquently quoted Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that's what we are seeing in the church today. The church, and not just the United Methodist Church, the church universally, is so much more focused on our differences and our divisiveness than we are focused on sharing the gospel of love. Second John warns against false teachings that divide and instead promotes the oldest and most important commandment, love. What a simple concept. What an elegant concept that that's the only thing that we as a church actually need to worry about. Love, loving one another, loving our neighbors, loving our community, just being a people embodying love. And what kind of love? Oh, let's go, 1 Corinthians 13. We already sang the first half of it. Let's pick up where we left off. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is the kind of love that John is trying to convince the church to grasp in the midst of their divisions. My, my, my church. Don't we need to hear that again? Because we quickly fall away from being a people of love the moment a divisive idea infects our community. How contagious that idea can be. So let me give you another idea. Instead of our divisions, consider love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Church love never ends. And so the lesson, the small but mighty lesson I hope we can take from this small but mighty book is that the core of our faith must be love. Second John is a letter to the church calling on them to oppose division and promote love. Whereas many different teachings may come out of many different leaders, you're going to hear from other people, aside from just me, that are going to say things that I might not say. But the core of our faith must be love. If there is no love in our religion, then we are no better than the U.S. government, constantly arguing in circles, trying to push some weak agenda for our own benefit, never making lasting change in the world. Yes, I'll call them out. If there is no love in our faith, then we are no better than a social club where we pay our dues to feel good about ourselves and head straight for the door once things get messy. If there is no love in this church, then it will close. Because no church is worth standing if it doesn't have love. And the same goes for the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church and any other iteration of our doctrinal divisions. If there is no love, let it close. The book of 2 John might be small, but please, please heed its mighty lesson. The core of our faith must be love, not division. 
Let us pray.